One truth is clear. Whatever is, is right. Thus reads Pope's Essay on Man. During Voltaire's lifetime, two calamities struck Western Europe and they turned that optimistic worldview upside down. Pope's essay was, what, 1733? So 22 years later, on All Saints' Day, All Saints' Day is a big deal in the Iberian Peninsula of Spain and Portugal, where all devout Catholics will be in church on November 1st, All Saints' Day. On that morning in 1755, churches throughout Europe, and especially in Spain and Portugal, were full of parishioners. And then without warning, a large earthquake, probably magnitude 8.5 to 8.6, it struck Lisbon at 9.30 a.m. And there, a second quake of about the same magnitude followed about 40 minutes later. At least 30 churches in Lisbon itself, full of worshipers, were flattened in an instant, along with tens of thousands of homes. <clears throat> Amidst the successive aftershocks, after the two primary shocks, survivors who had not been crushed got out on the streets. They raced toward open country in the open area along the Tagus River, and within about 40 minutes, a series of tsunamis, the highest estimated at about 20 feet, came ashore, and the backwash carried many more out to sea to their deaths. Those of you who've seen the videos of the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami know that very often, uh, the second wave will be higher than the first. And so if you have survived the first wave, this is just a little hint, don't go out looking around. Get up on higher ground because in about 20 minutes an even higher wave will come along. You probably heard from the Indian Ocean accounts that um, there's some areas where the population survived quite well. And, and most in particular, this was the Andaman Islands where a lot of... Um, Stone Age folks still live, and they knew from oral tradition, when the earth shakes, you go to high ground. And so there were relatively few casualties in the Andaman Islands. Also in Thailand and Burma, the elephants headed for high ground when they sensed the low frequency sound waves, those that we can't hear, but the elephants could sense them. So, after just inherited wisdom, the elephants headed for high ground. In any event, in case, I don't, what does this have to do with Michigan? Probably not so much. <laughs> but in case you are on the coast of Oregon or Washington, by the way. And the last biggie there was January 28th of 1700, and we know because the Japanese have kept very accurate tsunami records for a long time. And that biggie wiped out so much of the West Coast. So if you happen to be in the Pacific Northwest when something happens, you've got about 45 minutes to head for high ground. Anyway, that's more than you need to know. Um, 
So well over 100,000 people died in a matter of minutes in Lisbon and surroundings. Following this catastrophe, religious and secular authorities in Portugal and Spain went into panic mode. The Dominicans, and that word Dominican means hounds of God, Dominicanos, the hounds of God, the watchdogs of God. The Dominicans led the charge and they reinstated the Inquisition to, hand, to hunt down and to punish scapegoats. Amidst calamity, fear, and chronic anxiety, the inquisitors said someone must be responsible for the earthquake. There must be a cause, and we must find out who's behind this and destroy them. And thus thousands were hanged or burned alive in the hysteria following the Lisbon earthquake. And so who were the inquisitors? Well, these were not unruly mobs, of beer-drinking bubbas driving around in four-by-fours. The inquisitors were the powerful, the privileged, the sophisticated. They were the highest secular and religious, political, academic, and legal authorities of the time. These were not yahoos out causing mischief. These were the most respected people of the culture. Inquisitions then, just as well as now, are controlled by those in positions of power. Well, as if that wasn't enough, a second calamity struck Europe, the Seven Years' War. It swept into its whirlwind all the major powers of Europe. Prussia and Britain lined up against France, Russia, Sweden, Spain, and the German states. And Voltaire was mortified by the wholesale slaughter across Europe during this seven years or so. So amidst the bloodbaths of the Seven Years' War and the horrors of the Inquisition following the Lisbon earthquake, Voltaire wrote Candide. It was a direct attack on the pretense that all is well when obviously it is not, and the declaration that whatever is, is right. If everything is somehow for the best, then what would be the point of any human choices and actions? If the course of events has a built-in rightness and a progressive directionality, onward and upward and yada yada, then just what are we here for? Voltaire's Candide begins at a castle in Westphalia. Where's Westphalia? I don't know. You'll discover that Candide is bizarre. Picaresque in one interpretation. It begins at a castle in Westphalia, wherein lives a high and mighty baron, his 350-pound wife, their beautiful daughter Cunegonde, and her suitor Candide. They live in the castle. But also in the baron's castle is their resident tutor, Dr. Pangloss, a man who is revered far and wide for spouting off learned philosophical opinions on every subject imaginable, and hence his name, Pangloss, which means all tongues. Dr. Pangloss believed and he taught that everything in the world is necessarily for the best. It's all a matter of recognizing the sufficient logic of cause and effect. 
And so now let us hear a musical proposition by that most learned professor, Dr. Pangloss. And if you would like to follow along, the lyrics are on an insert page in your order of service. Let us review lesson 11. That two, satire, Gandhi, it's a playful romp. The characters travel all over the globe on foot, on horseback, on sailing vessels, on makeshift rafts. Beginning at the kingdom of Westphalia, on to Lisbon at the time of the earthquake, to Paris, to Buenos Aires, to the mythical kingdom of El Dorado, high in the Andes, to Paramaribo on the coast of South America, and finally by ship to Venice during the time of carnival. The characters might be shipwrecked, or the ship might sink, 
Or they might be bayoneted or hanged in one location, and then only by magic they reappear somewhere else very soon thereafter. You might recall the cartoons of the Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote. Well, guess what? The characters in Candide are just as indestructible, no matter how they might be tortured or murdered. It's not the end. And in Leonard Bernstein's musical setting, someone usually comes up with a perky little song about the calamity. In the first act of Bernstein's version, for example, he has two joyful little songs about syphilis. He also composed an outrageous parody about the horrors of the Inquisition, and it's entitled, What a Day, What a Day for an Auto da Fe. And it has a lively little tango in it. Now, at one level, Candide seems to be as rude and irreverent and insensitive as maybe a Monty Python routine. I mean, how can one parody something as horrific as the Inquisition? The characters in Candide are all too real, both for Voltaire and for Leonard Bernstein. Because both Voltaire and Mr. Bernstein suffered the horrors of persecution and inquisition. Voltaire witnessed the inquisition, torturing and burning people alive after the Lisbon earthquake. And Mr. Bernstein, whom we will hear for, for those of you who want to attend this afternoon's full presentation, at the beginning of Act Two, Mr. Bernstein puts his baton down and he turns to the audience and he speaks from the heart about what is going on and what caused him and Lillian Hellman and Stephen Sondheim and Richard Wilbur and so many others to turn their attention to this little satirical novel from two centuries ago. It's because Mr. Bernstein was among thousands who suffered during the 1950s under the witch hunts of McCarthyism. And so at the beginning of Act Two, uh, this concert from London, Bernstein turned to the audience and he spoke these words. This is an abbreviated version. The particular evil which impelled me to choose Candide as the basis for a musical stage work was what we now quaintly, and alas, faintly, recall as McCarthyism, an ism so akin to that Spanish Inquisition as to make the blood curdle. This was a period in the early 1950s, exactly 200 years after the Lisbon Affair when everything that America stood for was on the verge of being ground under the heel of the junior senator from Wisconsin, Joseph McCarthy, and his inquisitorial henchmen. That was the time of the Hollywood blacklist, television censorship, lost jobs, suicides, expatriation. 
and the denial of passports to anyone even suspected of having once known a suspected communist. And I can vouch for this. This is Mr. Bernstein speaking to his audience. I can vouch for this because I was denied a passport by my own government. And by the way, so was Voltaire denied a passport by his government. His answer was satire, ridicule, and through laughter to provoke in his reader self-recognition and, of course, some self-justification. Who, me? Not me. But this reflection produces discussion and it makes debate. And debate, after all, is the cornerstone of democracy. The cornerstone of democracy. End of quote, Leonard Bernstein. If debate is the cornerstone of democracy, then what is satire? Satire was how both Voltaire and Bernstein held up a mirror to the absurdities the absurdities of naive optimism and naive rationalism amidst natural calamities and amidst the gross cruelties of human behavior in the aftermath of suffering. Okay, let's return to the story of Candide. Candide and his bride-to-be, Cunegonde, they're living happily in the Westphalian <coughs> castle that is the property of Baron van der Tentronck. That's his name, van der Tentronck. And they are eagerly anticipating their wedding. But suddenly, an invading army of Hessians storms the castle and destroys everything in sight. Cunegonde is raped and murdered by the invaders. Candide alone survives the carnage. He reflects on the philosophical blatherings which his mentor, Dr. Pangloss, has just uttered about everything is for the best in this best of all possible worlds. And Candide, amidst the carnage, still hopes, despite the evidence, that perhaps there is sweetness in every woe. My world is lost now, and all I love is dead. So let me trust now in what my master said. There is a Strange love. 
Candide escapes from the bloodshed in the castle in Westphalia. And he travels to Lisbon, arriving just before the earthquake strikes. He survives the earthquake, and he hears the survivors crying, pray for us, pray for us. And then he witnesses the Inquisition. Candide and his tutor, Dr. Pangloss, who somehow is back to life again and who made his way to Lisbon, Candide and his tutor, Dr. Pangloss, observe the Inquisition from a distance. And then they observe to each other about what seems to be going on. Candide says to Pangloss, What is happening? Pangloss, The Inquisition, assisted by great lawyers from the university. Candide, what is an inquisition? Pangloss, pointing to a group of older men. A group of wise men who settle problems with justice for all. It will be a pleasure to watch them. A lawyer says to the crowd, The earth has shaken, be calm. We have come to settle the shaking of the earth. Put your faith in these wise men. They alone know the cause, and they will banish the danger. What causes the earth to tremble, sires? A very old inquisitor responds. Witches and wizards move among you. Send them forth for judgment. The lawyer says to the crowd, Search among yourselves. Send forth the sinful. One gold piece for a witch, and two gold pieces for a wizard and ten gold pieces for any who comes forward with information. A little child steps forward. The lawyer says to the child, You confess to being a witch. The child says, No, sir, I am a little child, but I can point out a wizard. And the child points to Candide. He creeps in here this morning. In his bag, he carried earthquake germs. Open bag and you will find the germs. The police grab Candide, and they open his bag. The child approaches the lawyer. Money, please. The lawyer says, it will be sent to you. A policeman looking in Candide's bag says, germs of earthquake have been found. The lawyer says to Candide, you are charged with communicating with the devil. And Pangloss comes forward and says, Sirs, this is a most interesting development, interesting entertainment. However, things must not go too far. How do you do, sir? And he says to a very old inquisitor, Haven't we met before? 
The lawyer says, who are you? And he points to Pangloss and says, show me your papers. Pangloss says, well, could we just dine together and tweak the tale of this philosophical cosmos over a bottle of cold wine? The lawyer says, this man must be a spy. And so Pangloss is also grabbed by the police. Condi says, I don't understand this, good sirs. Professor Pangloss is a great scholar, a believer in many, many things. The lawyer says, and do you believe in many things? Candide, I believe that the human heart is generous. I believe that the honor of women and men is all that they need on their life's journey. The very old inquisitor interrupts, guilty. Take them away. The police grab them. Candide, but we have done nothing. The oldest inquisitor said, that's the hardest way to die. The guilty die easier than the innocent because they have a normal sense of accomplishment. Take them away. So Candide and Pangloss are made ready for execution. The very old inquisitor says to the crowd, remember to give thanks that you have been saved from an earthquake. The danger is over. Candide is flogged, Pangloss is hanged, and his last words to Candide before dying on the scaffold are, Candide, the world is beautiful. Go forth and see it. There is sweetness in every woe. And so Candide slowly makes his way from Lisbon's reign of terror and the self-righteous arrogance of the Inquisition. Must be me, it must be. 
The characters in Candide face every trauma imaginable. Wars, rape, drowning, famine, earthquakes, debauchery, disease. No one escapes the horrors except to one place. The mythical kingdom of El Dorado, high in the Andes. El Dorado is a place of peace, prosperity, kindness, honesty. And yet, after arriving in El Dorado... Candide and his traveling entourage realize that they cannot remain there forever. They cannot remain where all is perfect. Candide must return to the ordinary broken world from which he came. Humanity does not really want perfection. Humanity is forever dwelling in a kind of tension between restless anxiety on the one hand and the lethargy of boredom on the other. One might imagine replacing all of the evils in this world with a kind of utopian bliss, but basically humanity prefers the messiness of what is to utopian perfection. Dwelling within this tension between anxiety and boredom with all of its attendant variety. We are lovers of life. We are lovers of the romp itself. Even more than we desire perfection. I want to turn as we draw toward a close. I want to turn to the wisdom of my former mentor Stephen Jay Gould. A New Yorker who was among many volunteers at Ground Zero in Lower Manhattan during the days following 9-11. Amidst the unspeakable horrors in Lower Manhattan, Steve wrote these words four or five days later, as I recall. Front page New York Times. He wrote, Good and kind people outnumber all others by thousands to one. The tragedy of human history lies in the enormous potential for destruction in rare acts. Complex systems can only be built slowly, step by step, whereas destruction requires but an instant. And thus, in what I call the great asymmetry, the great asymmetry, Every incident of evil must be balanced by 10,000 acts of kindness, often unnoticed and invisible. We have a duty 
to record these innumerable kindnesses, especially when an unprecedented act of evil threatens to distort our perception of human behavior. I have stood at ground zero, stunned by the twisted ruins of the largest human structures ever destroyed. The scene is insufferably sad, and yet it is also a focal point for a vast web of bustling goodness and kindness. Uncountable deeds of generosity coming from an entire planet, acts that must be recorded to reaffirm the overwhelming weight of human decency. And I will cite one story. These are Gould's words. As we left a local restaurant to make a delivery to Ground Zero late one night, <coughs> the cook in this restaurant gave us a shopping bag and said to us, here is a dozen apple brown Bettys, our best dessert, still warm. Please give them to the rescue workers. We promised that we would make the distribution. Twelve apple brown Bettys into the breach. Twelve apple brown Bettys for thousands of rescue workers. But then I learned something important. Those twelve apple brown Bettys turned into little drops of gold within a rainstorm of similar offerings for the soul. From children's postcards to cheers by the roadside, we gave the last of these apple brown Bettys to a firefighter who was sitting alone in utter exhaustion. And he said with a twinkle and a smile that was restored to his face, thank you, this is the most lovely thing I have seen in four days. And it is still warm. Leonard Bernstein died before the horrors of September 11. He died before the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, before the tsunami of 2004, before the devastations of Hurricane Sandy. And if Mr. Bernstein were with us today, I have a hunch. I have a hunch that he might make his way to Avery Fisher Hall at Lincoln Center, gather as many instrumentalists as could be there. He would pick up his baton and conduct this masterpiece, Candide. It is his reminder about human pride. And it calls us instead to humility. It calls us to recreate the spirit of life amidst the rubbles from Staten Island and Queens to Syria and Iraq and far beyond. I have a hunch that if Mr. Bernstein were to, to choose a conclusion, a benediction, a closing, a blessing, it might be this final chorale from his masterpiece, Candide.
Cunegonde, we are not what we were, nor do we wish to be. What we wanted, we will not have. The way we have loved, we will not love again. We love now for what we are. We are not what we were, nor do we wish to be. The way we have loved, we will not love again. We love now for what we are. Marry me, Cunegonde.
any questions? Psalm 131, which Leonard Bernstein set to music in his Chichester Psalms. It's written in five, four times, five beats to the measure. This is not the tempo of a triumphal march onward and upward. It is the tempo of one who is limping, one who has been wounded. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four. Uh, Psalm 131 is just three verses long. And with these words we shall close. Adonai, Adonai, lo gavali be. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. But but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a child quieted at its mother's breast. Yahel Israel el Adonai, me'atavad olam. O Israel, hope for the Lord from this time forth and forevermore.